You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Summer, listening to Jesus. I just uh, cannot stress enough how much we need to be in God's Word and specifically the Gospels. And so I want to do some parables from the Gospel of Luke. That's what we're going to do for the next eight weeks. That's going to lead us up into backpack giveaway. And so let's take, let's take uh, the eight weeks and just listen to Jesus tell some stories. He's the storytelling Savior who comes to speak life to us, as you just saw. If you don't know what parables are, you've heard the word. We kind of know what the idea is. I'll tell you the Greek, and, and if you've been around this church long enough, you've heard me say this before. Uh, the word bowl at the end of parable is the, where we get our word ball from. It means to throw. And para, like parallelogram, is, it means alongside of. And so Jesus is throwing alongside uh, stories to help us understand better what his mission and purpose is. And so... He's usually using earthly stories to try to help us understand heavenly realities. He's throwing along these stories together. And so I just want to spend some time listening to that, listening to Jesus tell us stories. If you've got some scriptures in front of you or you want to look at the screen, we're going to go through the first parable that's told in Luke is found in chapter 5. I'm going to get mine out. Uh, page 784. It's on the bottom right-hand side, like the last little section there. Jesus is getting ready to call another disciple who will become an apostle. And during that call, uh, there's a feast. And then during that feast, the Pharisees grumble, as they always do, the religious elite. And Jesus wants to teach them a lesson. And uh, so he uses a parable. He literally uses the word parable. It's like when you are watching a movie and they say the title of the movie in the movie. You're like... This is what happens here. Starting in verse 27, bottom right. Afterward, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. This is what Jesus always says. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Model discipleship stuff right here. Then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus in his home, and a large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with them. And the Pharisees and their legal experts grumbled against his disciples, and they said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call the righteous people, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. Keep going. Some people said to Jesus, The disciples of John the Baptist fast often and pray frequently. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But your disciples party. They're always eating and drinking. Jesus replied, you can't make wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? Weddings in the Jewish culture would go on a week sometimes, and people were didn't have to fast. They didn't have to go through their religious ritual of fasting during weddings. It was a celebration. Jesus says, it's a wedding. We don't got to fast. He goes on in 35. The days will come 
when the groom will be taken from them, and they will fast. Disciples of Jesus fast, just not at that moment. Then he gives them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment to patch onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new garment would be ruined, and the new patch wouldn't match the old garment. Nobody pours new wine into old wineskins. If they did, the new wine would burst the wineskins. The wine would spill, and the wineskins would be ruined. Instead, new wine must be put into new wineskins. No one who drinks a well-aged wine wants new wine, but says, the old wine is better. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Is old wine better? I got some wine experts over here. Wine is, the old wine is better. I don't know, but I'm going to trust you all. Old grape juice, not better. I know that. There are two ways to read this parable, and I want to tell you that I agonized over it for hours yesterday, reading multiple commentaries going all the way back to Cyril of Alexandria, all the way up to Joel B. Green, who teaches down in Southern California, which, first of all, should be surprising to you. If anyone tells you scripture is clear, I'm going to tell them that I have studied quite a bit and it's not always clear. So I want you to know that Christians have read this story two different ways and they are opposite ways. They are opposite ways. The first way is that some people, when Jesus is saying old and new, he's saying the Pharisees represent the old ways. And they represent the old covenant, and they represent a a way that is traditional in a way that does not help anymore, and that in Jesus, a new thing is here, a new covenant is here, new creation is here. And I'll tell you, most Christians have read it this way for most of, of history. The the Pharisees represent the old and Jesus represents the new. But there are some Christians who read it the opposite. They read it the opposite. Did I go too far? The religious are the old, Jesus is the new. Some people read it the opposite way. That the religious elite, that these Pharisees are actually the innovators. That they are actually the new ones who are bringing new things and that Jesus is tapping into an old way of God. And and I'm just going to tell you today, I'm going to preach from this position. This is Joel Green out of Southern California. He's probably the greatest Lucan scholar right now. He says that this is what's going on. But we can still be brothers and sisters and have disagreeing agreements about how this is interpreted. But essentially what he's saying is, and if you don't know who the Pharisees are, let's just start right there. The Pharisees were normal people like us. Not priests. They didn't work in the temple. They were just normal folks who weren't priests. But when they read their Bibles, they read all these rules that the priests had to follow so that they could be close to God in the temple. The the priests had to follow all these rules so that they could be holy enough to live close to God in God's temple. And the Pharisees said, if it's good for the priests, it must be good for us too. And so they took the holiness rules of the priest and they started telling everybody that they needed to follow them. This became really important after the temple gets destroyed in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus. And so that's the Judaism we have today. It comes from the Pharisees. And so the argument that's being made with this position is that Jesus is actually saying, you made up new rules, Pharisees. 
You're trying to do a new thing that God never intended. And I, Jesus, am actually tapping into the thing that God originally wanted. I'm the old wine. No one drinks old wine and says the new is better. The old garment needs to be patched, right? Jesus' parable is that there's a, the old garment is good and it should be patched. You just don't put new patches on it because when you wash it, it'll shrink and make the tear worse. You don't put new wine into old wineskins because as the new wine ferments, it's going to burst your old good wineskins. You put old wine in old wineskins and that old wine is delicious apparently. I've not had. I've not imbibed myself. Apparently. And so that's this position is that Jesus is actually accusing these people who claim to be old and traditional. They claim to be doing it based on the book. And Jesus says, you actually did the new thing. You're going to try to burst the wineskin. You're going to ruin the cloth. Tap into the old ways of God. That's how I'm preaching it today. You disagree with me, that's fine. You just, you have to endure 20 minutes of thinking I'm wrong. That's fine. That Jesus' way looks new to them, but actually taps into the very old ways of God. And with that in mind, let's do our normal thing. Head, heart, hand, something for us to know, something for us to feel, something for us to do. I always ask these questions. What does God want us to know, feel, and do? And I think it's this, that God's goal was always to save the sinful, not separate us from sinners. God's goal was always I mean, God launched God's mission after the fall of humanity and creation to save the world and to save the people of the world. And our religious elite here, they read the old ways and they say, we have to be separate. We have to be distinct. I can't believe you're eating with those people. And Jesus goes, you missed the thing that God's been doing from the beginning. Come to save and seek the lost. Right? Jesus tells us. Well, the Pharisees, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And Jesus answered, I didn't come for the righteous. This is supposed to be ironic. You're supposed to laugh because anyone who thinks they're too righteous for Jesus is not righteous at all. They've missed the entire mark. I've come for sinners. So they would change their hearts and lives. Healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick do. This is what God has been doing from the beginning. And, this is, and, and God is enacting God's plan in and through Jesus. Some more, right? Nobody pours new wine into old wineskins. No one who drinks a well-aged wine and old wine wants new wine. It says the well-aged wine, the old wine is better. I really do think Jesus is saying God from the beginning has always wanted to heal a broken creation and a broken people. And I'm actually doing that. That's what I'm doing when I'm eating with these people. Not come to separate myself from them, but to save them. God didn't start a religious movement in the world simply so that we could create an us versus them mentality. God started a religious movement in the world so that the whole world could be redeemed and restored. And Jesus says, do that. That's what we're doing. That's what we're here for. Pharisees claim to represent the good old ways, but Jesus says his ways are older and better. They actually tap into what God originally wanted to do. It reminds me of the movie Moana. <laughs> if you don't know the story of Moana, it's one of the best. My wife and I bring it up weekly. My wife will cry immediately watching it every single time. She just identifies with it so much. But I'm going to show you two clips. The opening song is like, 
Our old tradition is that we never leave the island. Like we sing an ancient song. This is the way we never leave the island. Here's that song. I cut it up. Take a listen. Make way, make way. Moana, it's time you knew. The village of Motunu is all you need. The dancers are practicing. They dance to an ancient song. Who needs a new song? This whole one's all we need. This tradition is our mission. And Moana, there's so much to do. Instead of the coconuts, the trunks and the leaves, the island gives us what we need. So, the song is like, we sing an ancient, this is an ancient song, we never leave. And she's like getting social, she's getting brainwashed to believe it. She's like, no one leaves. Yeah, we don't leave. We don't leave the island. Until halfway through the movie, she discovers an even older tradition. Listen. What's in there? The answer to the question you keep asking yourself. Who are you meant to be? Go inside, bang the drum, and find out. So they're like, the people of the village are like, the ancient tradition is we never leave. And then she's like, I found an older tradition. We were actually voyagers. You've been hiding these ships all along. And then the rest of the movie is her out on the ocean. It's really important. She has to do it to save the whole world. Does she do it? I'll let you be the guy. I'm not spoiling that one for you. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. I'm just kidding. I think that's exactly what's going on in this story is that these Pharisees are like, we have the old tradition. We're do- You're eating with sinners? And Jesus is going, you missed the even older thing, the more ancient wisdom of God. It's that God has gone on mission. They call it, if you want some Latin, the Missio Dei. God has gone on mission to seek and save the lost, broken, to restore them and redeem them. The Pharisees acted like they had the best way, rooted in the best tradition. But I think Jesus is like, no, yours is the new wine. And you're going to burst the thing that God's actually trying to do. You're going to break it, at least for yourselves, but for lots of other people too. That Jesus' way of seeing the broken healed is the older wine. It's what God has always wanted for this world. So God is on mission. And Jesus represents what God has always wanted to do. That's what God wants us to know with our heads. What does God want us to experience through this parable of Jesus? What is God asking us to feel? For me, I think Jesus is inviting us into the heart of God. Jesus is inviting us more deeply into the heart of God and what God is doing in the world. I see that in passages like this. Uh, Everybody else's disciples 
fast often and pray frequently, and yours are always eating and drinking. And Jesus says, this is a wedding. You miss the wedding. This is a celebration. The thing that God has always wanted to do is being fulfilled in your presence right now. And this is a wedding. Heaven and earth are getting married. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for celebration, for feasting, for being excited. Right? No time to fast. Feast. The blind are seeing, and the broken are being healed, and the sinful are redeemed. He's inviting us deeper into the heart of God and what God is doing in the world and in through Jesus. This is what God has always wanted. This is what God has always wanted. This is what God originally designed. We broke it. God is making it happen again in and through Jesus. And Jesus invites us more deeply into the Father's heart. The religious have turned their religion into identity markers. They made it an us versus them situation. And sometimes that is part of what we're doing here. But they were like, we fast and pray. You eat and drink. You must be bad because you don't align with our identity markers, right? We fast twice a week and we pray three times a day. We are different than them. And any real rabbi who's worth any salt wouldn't dare to eat with them. And we don't really even get these kind of table politics, but this was a very big deal. And so these, they used their religion to create identity markers about who they were and who the bad people were so they could puff themselves up as being righteous when in reality they missed the very heart of God in the midst of all of that. Because the goal of fasting and praying and coming here on Sunday and singing and reading our scriptures, the goal of all of that isn't to fast and pray and to read our scriptures and to come here and sing. That's not the goal of what we're doing. The goal of what we're doing is that we can have more and more of the heart of God and we can enter more and more into the heart of God. The goal of all the stuff we do isn't to do it. It's not a checklist. It's not an identity marker. It's so that we could be more loving like our Father. That is the goal. And any religion that doesn't produce people that have more fruit of the Holy Spirit and make us more like the Father who is love is not worth following. And so Jesus invites us more deeply into the heart of God, and he reveals to us that God's heart bleeds for the broken and the lost and the sick and the sinful. And Jesus is making a declaration in this parable that they missed it. For all the stuff they do, they missed it. And in fact, in some ways, they might be more sick than anyone else around them because they have used religion to distance themselves from God instead of actually getting to the heart of God. As I've told you before, I get to teach some classes at Chico State. These are some of my kids on finals day. I had 84 students. In one of the final assignments, I've told this story to 100 different people because it was so stressful for me, so sorry if you have to hear it again. But one of the final assignments was they asked them to write a two-page paper, and they got to pick some prompts. One of them was two-page double space by y'all. That's one page. Using some of the sociological concepts you've, you've, we've learned, talk to me about dating and maybe your future spouse, right? That's a, you know, that's a big part of life. Or talk to me about your future career. What, kind of, what do you hope to get at the end of this educational journey? What kind of job do you want? Uh, I can't remember the other two were. One was like, anything you want, just run it by me. Um, and so this was the one about careers. 
talk about the role of education from a sociological perspective. Does education exist to create better employees? What kinds of expectations do you feel from your family to have to achieve at the end of this educational journey? And seven students cheated on a two-page paper. They used AI to write their papers. I didn't catch them until I was 40 papers deep, by the way, and so then I was extra mad because I was halfway done. But let me show you what I saw. I don't know if you know how AI works, but it's not, it's, it's self-generating, it's creative, so you can't like check to see if they plagiarized because there's nothing that exists to compare it to. But when you put the same prompt into the same AI, you get a lot of the same responses. Let me show you. <laughs> I know it's hard to see. Student number one. Education does, it does not exist to create better employees. Education is meant to promote personal growth, critical thinking, creativity. <laughs> Student three, some argue that education exists primarily to create better employees, but we think education should include development of critical thinking skills. Student number four, although education is often viewed as a means to create better employees, education should also help individuals become better at critical thinking. They all, I'm like, all of you think education should be? The question of whether education exists solely to create better employees is a contentious one. A well-rounded education includes critical thinking and creativity. We got creativity again. The question of, this is the last one, of whether or not education's primary purpose is to create better employees is a contentious one. Both of you think it's a contentious one? That's really interesting. Wow. No, education should focus on developing critical thinking skills and creativity. I was like, hold up. That was just one example. I was like, you all have the same opinion about education. That's really interesting. Really into creative, uh, you know, critical thinking skills. So I sent them an email and I was like, listen, seven of you. I think there was 10, but I can only prove seven. And I sent them a seven, and I was like, some of you used AI, and I got I to gotta give you the penalty for cheating. Four of them right away were like, I'm so sorry. I, I should not have done that. One person I never heard from again. <laughs> One of the four tried to drop my class on finals day. You can't do that, by the way. <laughs> there has to be, it has to be the apocalypse to do that. She's like, can I drop? I was like, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Two of them were like, I wrote every word of that. Those are all my ideas. And I was like, so we had a battle, and I won. Yeah, and I held my guns. Yay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. All that to say, they, and the big, the big proof to me was that none of them were like, here's the job I hope to get, and here's how I think my education is going to help me. That's the heart of the question. And what I tell them at the beginning of the semester is like, I don't care about grades. I don't care about grades at all. I'm legally required to give you a grade. I care about you learning the subject, but I have to give you a grade. So we got some assignments, but I really, they missed the heart of the whole deal. They missed the heart of the assignment. They missed the heart of the class. It's two-page journal entry on what your future job wants to be. And they cheated. It broke my heart. They messed it up. That was not my goal for them was to turn in a two-page paper. I do not care. My goal for them was to learn and to try and to tell me about their life using some of these. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. That the goal for them wasn't just to become religious. It wasn't for them to fast and pray. They missed it. 
They messed it up by trying to do the, the perfunctory, you know, checklist. This is the thing God asked us to do, so we're going to do it. And then, and then they made it a whole identity thing, and God goes, you missed, you missed the whole heart of it. You missed the whole heart of it. It's not to make you think that you're too good for everybody else. It's not to separate you. That will naturally happen when you follow the way of Jesus, but that's not the goal or the purpose It's not to become religious for religious' sake. It's to put you on mission with Jesus to heal the world. That's what God's doing. That's the heart of the Father. That's the old wine and the old garment. And you put that new stuff on it and you just mess it up. You just miss it all together. One quote from Rachel Helda Evans, and then we'll move on. She says, but the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors, and shouting, Welcome! There's bread and wine. Old wine. Good wine. (laughs) Come and eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. And I think this is the heart of God that Jesus is inviting us into. That there's a way in which you can do this religious thing that makes you miss it. And that's the scariest thing of all. That's the scariest part of this. What does God want us to do then? What does God want us to do if Jesus is saying God has been on mission from the beginning and and I'm inviting you more deeply into the heart of the Father? The action then is to be all in on the mission. This is what God wants us to do. Be all in. And the beginning of this whole section is the example of what we're supposed to do. Not be like those religious leaders be like Levi the tax collector, which is really, really radical. That the gospel over and over again promotes sinners and outcasts as the model for how we are supposed to respond to Jesus. Not the religious professionals, not the ones who have it all together, the broken and lost people who recognize their sickness and say, yeah, I'd like to be part of what you're doing, Jesus. Afterward, Jesus went out. The passage tells you saw a tax collector. I don't even know how to, I don't even have an example to give you about how hated these people were, but they were hated. They were considered betrayers of their own people. They were working for a foreign empire that conquered their people, and they were taking their people's money and sending it to the oppressive empire. People hated them. And Jesus looks at him and says, Follow me. And Levi got up and left everything behind. And follow Jesus. Just, what verse are we on? It doesn't say. Just a few verses before that in Luke 5.11, the same exact phrase is used for James and John and Peter. James and John and Peter brought the boats to shore. They left everything and followed Jesus. Luke is giving us a pattern of what real discipleship looks like in following Jesus. These are model disciples. If you want to be on mission with Jesus, you want to be in the heart of God, you want to be doing what God has been doing from the beginning, you leave everything behind and you follow Jesus. There is so much that you can't take with you on mission with Jesus. I mean, Jesus says later in Luke, right, we got to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. It's a death. We are dying to so much of ourselves uh, in this mission. He's asking us to leave a lot behind because it doesn't fit in the old wineskins. It's going to break it. It's going to break our ability to follow it. It reminds me of, in a really dumb way, sorry, y'all, 
my pocket knives. I love to have a good pocket knife. I know I probably talked about this before. I love it. So helpful. One time I feel like I saved a wedding. I don't know if they would think I saved a wedding, but I feel like I saved a They didn't have a wine cork. And I had a Swiss Army knife with a little wine cork. And I was like, I got one right here. And they were like, ah! They were so excited. And I was like, hi. I saved the day. There's nothing. Was it old wine? I think it was new wine. But, <laughs> but every one of my pocket knives is gone. Not even because I lost them. I'm more responsible than that. What happens is that I show up to airport security with a pocket knife. I don't even think about it. I, the first time I showed up, I, I put everything in the... I put my bowls and my keys. And the guy goes... What were you going to do with this? And I was like, I don't know. So I was like, throw it away. <laughs> and then usually it goes like this. I go, I, f- I forgot. I have a pocket knife. And they go, why don't you go check it in your luggage? And I go, I don't have any luggage to check. I got a backpack with two pairs of underwear and a shirt in it. And they're like, good point. They're like, take it back to your car. And I'm like, do I look like I got here early? My flight is leaving in 10 minutes. I don't have time to go back out to the car. They're like, throw it away then. And that's what happens. I've had three to four pocket knives just get thrown in the trash. So if you ever need to know to give me for a birthday or Christmas, I love to just have one, just in case, in case I need to save a wedding with the wine. They're like, you can't take it with you. You have to leave it behind. There's so much we got to leave behind if we're going on mission. There's so much Jesus wants us to leave behind. You can't take it. It's just going to mess up the whole deal. And so I think there's some things that we try to bring. I just got four I want to talk about quickly, and then I'm wrapping up. I think there's things that we try to bring into this mission that it's just going to burst the wineskin. It's going to make the terror worse. Jesus is asking us to leave it. Take this for what you want. These are the four things that I've been convicted about recently, and I think they kind of match the, the context. I'm going to say first one is politics. There's some of us myself included, that are trying to bring this identity, this thing, this fight we're doing in our society into the mission, and it's going to burst the wineskins. And our society is doing everything we can to make this a primary identity for us so that we can keep fighting and we keep being angry so that we'll keep voting and we'll keep sending them money, and we got to let this go. It's going to break the wineskins. I think some of us are trying to bring too much comfort Some of us are trying to bring too much comfort into the kingdom. It's going to burst the wineskins. I need a cute picture after the, the politics talk. The Pharisees are uncomfortable with the way that Jesus is talking to people. Politically, but just their, and their discomfort dis- allows them to be a part of what Jesus is doing. It makes them miss it. And so I think sometimes we try to bring too much comfort to, into this mission. And Jesus talks about it as a cross, as a denial, as a dying to self. And sometimes our comfort puts us more into the category of Pharisee than it does into Jesus' disciples. Knowledge. These religious leaders had all the knowledge, but in all the wrong way. I love knowledge. All I have is books. This is what I've invested in my whole... The, one of the reasons I do head, heart, hands is because I never want to talk about heart or hands. I only want to talk about head, but I know that that's not what we are meant to do. 
Knowledge alone puffs up and it wrecks us. And so there's a way in which we can have, we can overemphasize this in a way that, that, that bursts the wineskin, that makes the wineskin burst. I'll just say, and I didn't make this up, somebody else said this. Most of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. Most of us know more than we're doing. You don't need more. You need more action. You got enough to take some about 10 or 15 steps forward. And just like the Pharisees, the knowledge became a detriment. Not that we don't want to. I love it. I got books. I'll give you all of them. But there's a way in which it can be a hindrance. And then lastly, there's a judgmentalism. And I've just been really convicted lately about how we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. And we just reinforce this us versus them, us versus them, to the point of comparing ourselves to the point where our intentions and their actions, where we think we're righteous and we think they're broken. They're dumb or demonic and we're doing our best. And we fail to see that we also need a physician, that we also need a doctor. You can't bring that attitude into the mission. It will burst the wineskin. So when we prioritize ourselves with those things, we are in danger of missing the great physician when he's standing in front of us. Being all in on mission with Jesus means leaving behind what will burst our chances for following Christ. I'm going to check to see if we got any questions, and I'm going to wrap up. My musical team is like, what is happening Why are you taking so long? Go ahead and preach. How did they use AI during the final? <laughs> Good question. It was for a paper that they had to turn in before the final. So they just did it at home. They just did it at home. But I'm going to start making them write papers in front of encouraged to be on mission, all in, all in. And we got to leave behind a lot of the stuff that's going to hinder our walk with Jesus. You have to let it go so that we don't miss out on what Jesus is doing with that. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father. Thank you for this parable, this story. Thank you for your son and the wisdom, the example. Would you help us to live it out? Would you help us to live it out? Not thinking about all the other people that need to hear this parable, but applying it to our own hearts and lives that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, that you would challenge us, that you would transform us, that we would be quick to see our need for you in your healing as the great physician and not all the sicknesses of all the other people around us. And as you heal us, would it be motivation not to hoard that blessing, but to empathize in a way that is on mission with you to see other lost, sick, sinful people restored, redeemed, healed, and become whole. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's just feeling a little extra broken and needing your touch, needing your help, would your Holy Spirit be near to them? And would they make steps today to be deeper into the heart of you, to taste that old, old wine that is so good, that they'd only ultimately change their hearts and lives so that they could follow you deeper into your heart and more on mission in the world. And we thank you and we give you praise. Say these things in Jesus' name. 
Table Church, will you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom.